truck and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Dace Show. And greetings. Happy Thursday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show, live and on demand on The Blaze. I am Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. 888-900-3393 is the number here at The Blaze. 888-900-3393. You can like us on Facebook. You just need to like us there a lot. You can also follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show or just email the program. Steve at SteveDace.com. That's D-E-A-C-E. For those of you listening today via Blaze Radio or on demand on the podcast, and if you are listening to us via podcast, if you wouldn't mind, take a couple of seconds, leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice, and thank you to the thousands of you that have already done that for us. We greatly appreciate you. Coming up a little bit later on, a good buddy of mine, best-selling author Joel C. Rosenberg is going to be joining us, talking about his new bestseller, but also he lives in Jerusalem, so he'll give us his take on the Israeli elections as well. We've got a truth bomb coming your way. We're going to continue our series on Easter for Theology Thursday by invoking the question, whom do the people say that I am? And we're going to look at uh, the various players involved uh, in the Easter story. You know, last week we talked about a familiar story from the Gospels and how there's a contemporary setting Uh, for each of the players in that story. And we're going to do it again this week, though, with the Easter story specifically. So that's coming up a little bit later on here today, live and on demand on The Blaze. But first, before all of those zany hijinks ensue, Aaron must get us updated with what happened while we were away. What happened while we were away brought to you by Big Brother. Senator Ted Cruz held a hearing yesterday focusing on the alleged censorship of conservatives by tech giants Google, Twitter, Facebook, and others. Chuck Konzelman, producer of the film Unplanned, testified. Let me know if this sounds familiar to you. The MPAA saddled us with an R rating, which strongly discourages much of the Christian audience and all of the Church of Latter-day Saints from seeing our film since they have a general prohibition against seeing R-rated films. With an R rating, we were prohibited from advertising before anything other than other R-rated films without special permission, which we sought and were denied. We were systematically denied access to the outlets where we sought to advertise, among which were Lifetime, UpTV, Hallmark, HGTV, USA Network, Food Network, The Travel Channel, DIY, and The Cooking Channel. Google Ads, formerly known as Google AdWords, blocked the entirety of the unplanned pre-release banner ads. Google cited a policy regarding abortion-related ads. Just one problem. We weren't doing abortion-related ads. We were marketing a movie. In the early morning hours of Saturday, March 30th, the film's Twitter account, technically the account owned by the film's single-purpose marketing entity, was suspended. The reason for that suspension has not, to the best of my knowledge, been made clear beyond being accidental or a mistake. However, when such accidents occur within 12 hours of the film's theatrical debut, and after what I understand was nine months of ownership, during which time there were zero suspensions, the glitch becomes suspect. At the same hearing, a spokesman for Twitter said of the unplanned Twitter account being suspended, quote, This account was caught in our automated systems used to detect ban evasion. Ban evasion technology is an important tool used to reduce the number of repeat offenders on our platform, end quote. 
WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange was indicted by the U.S. and arrested in London after being taken out of the Ecuadorian embassy where he's been holed up for years. He's being charged in connection with a conspiracy case to hack into computers with the artist formerly known as Bradley Manning. Rising GOP star Dan Crenshaw has been on the fundraising circuit recently for the group Log Cabin Republicans, a group who are made up of, quote, LGBT Republicans and straight allies who support equality under the law for all, free markets, individual liberty, limited government, and a strong national defense, end quote. Maxine Waters tried to embarrass the chiefs of several big banks yesterday, asking them why they weren't doing anything to help the recent uptick in defaults on student loans. What are you guys doing to help us with the student loan debt? Who would like to answer first? Mr. Monaghan, big bank. Uh, we stopped making student loans in 2007 or so. Oh, so you don't do it anymore, Mr. Corbett? We exited student lending in 2009. Mr. Diamond? When the government took over student lending in 2010 or so, we stopped doing all student lending. Uh, thank you. What about small business? The New York Post's front page blasted Congresswoman Elon Omar's recent comments about 911, quote, some people did something, end quote, with a picture of the World Trade Centers in flames. The first ever photo of a black hole surfaced yesterday. It's truly an astounding sight, but it's awfully funny that so many people of science are celebrating this because by definition, you can't actually see a black hole. What we're witnessing is just the evidence of things unseen. Huh. And finally, meet Kaz James. Kaz is a store manager in the United Kingdom who, quote, never felt like a human, end quote, and has embraced his true self and now lives as a human pup, even eating his meals from a dog bowl. He admits he felt weird and unable to relate to others before allowing his pup persona to shine through in his late teens. He says, quote, it's very much a form of self-expression. What I choose to wear depends on what I'm doing. And that's what happened while we were away. Very appropriately so, Aaron's montage is brought to you by our friends at WaxRx. Do you have itchy ears? Uh, ear pain, that plugged up feeling? Are you constantly asking people to repeat themselves? If that's you, you know what? One of those dreaded doctor office visits could be in the offing, await a copay and a script that you need to pay and fulfill. But what if I told you you could get all those same results without any of those other problems associated with it? You can now, courtesy of WaxRx. It's a physician-developed technology that safely and effectively removes earwax buildup then soothes the ear with a pH-conditioned formula. And now you can use WaxRx not just in the comfort and convenience of your own home, but without a prescription too. All right, so try the WaxRx system risk-free today. Just go to usewaxrx.com. All one word, usewaxrx, the website, usewaxrx.com. And while you're there, use the offer code radio at checkout for free shipping. Usewaxrx.com, usewaxrx.com, offer code radio at checkout for free shipping. We're going to talk about uh, Chuck Consulman's uh, testimony uh, before Ted Cruz's committee about Twitter's uh, and other media's actions toward the film Unplanned. That's coming up. We're going to go more in depth on that story with the Blaze Roundtable today. So if you are a Blaze subscriber, you get a chance to watch that uh, coming up a little bit later on. But, I, you know, yesterday you had Jerry Nadler with the shrug. Today you have Maxine Waters calling up all those big banks, head honchos. What do you do about student loans? Uh, we haven't, it's been more than a decade. We don't even give out 
student loans anymore. You guys took that from us, uh, Max. Maxie, you guys are uh, you guys are doing that now. So you probably need to ask yourselves, what are you guys going to do about student loan debt? I mean, you guys are the ones regulating that now. You took that out of our hands. Oh, I. I that was still just their white privilege talking. Steve. Yes. What what. What, what's happening here? Well, that is good. Yes, agree. And I had forgotten about Orrin Hatch forgetting to put glasses on. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. I had forgotten. Well played there, uh, Mr. McIntyre. Very well played. Him, you know what? Using that, putting that, putting that together with Nadler's shrug. Oh. That's, that together is, you know, that's the United States Congress in a nutshell yeah. there. But what you're what you're seeing is that it's it's not that the conclusions of how to proceed on policy that conservatives come to are always right. I'm not arguing that. Okay? What I'm what I'm arguing though is that if you identify as a conservative and you're serious about it, then you have you have admitted to an act of humility because you are seeking to conserve that which forces beyond your direct control have revealed are worthy of conserving. You don't control the arc and flow of history. You don't control macroeconomics. Hell, most of us barely these days control the microeconomics of our own home. Okay? Meaning you don't you don't control the machinations that determine the outcomes around here. You largely don't control them. You don't control whether it works to bring freedom and democracy to the Middle East or not. You don't control that. You don't control whether a gold standard or a fiat currency is the way to go. You don't control any of the machinations that reveal the outcomes of these policies. You control none of them. And so you are seeking to conserve the results of of methods and processes and I and and outcomes that are outside of your control. That is humility in and of itself. Dare I say that that's an act of faith in a way. You are admitting you are not God. You are admitting there are forces at work in this world more powerful than you and can generate outcomes. To your benefit outside of your control and that's why you've heard me say conservatism is not an ideology it's an observational science so we are less prone unless now i didn't say immune did i say immune no no <clears throat> we are less prone to fall prey to what is on display with maxine waters there now we can fall prey to it because we're sinners too. We live east of Eden as well. And how you fall prey to that is a wanton and deliberate, but I repeat myself, lack of being informed. And you do that for one of two reasons. A, you don't think you need to be because you're just so justified in your view of the world that you just 
automatically and self-righteously assume everything you would examine would line up with the way you see things. And it's highly likely that's the uh, that's the option that Maxine Waters that's that's was the name of the rake she stepped on in her own committee hearing yesterday. Just the assumption is banks bad, private industry bad. <clears throat> Are there bad banks? Yeah. Are there bad private industries? Yeah. Are there bad operators even within good private industries? Yeah. Are there bad managers within even good banks? Yeah. But she's not looking at it that way. She's looking at this as a holistic indictment. Holistically, this must be your fault because my my worldview or my preferences told me so. So I don't have an informed worldview. I have an emotional one. I have one that is driven by desire more than information. By emotion more than facts. I instinctively need this or know this to be true, or emotionally, I want it to be. And so I'm just going to run out there under those assumptions. And she operates in an environment where there is almost no pushback because of the state of American media today and the state of American education today. So there's almost no pushback to these assumptions whatsoever. Unless those bankers do what they did yesterday, which is we don't actually do what you're what you called us up here to testify against. So that's one way that we can be prone to this on the right. The other is when we make, when we as conservatives make the determination that it, the, that an outcome that we desire needs to occur to affirm our belief in something. When we become outcome based operators, when we decide, for example, let me give you just an example. I don't know why. Just kind of on the tip of my tongue today. When we decide, for example, that a fiend in a Putin operative um, who likes to leak troop movements that get American soldiers killed can suddenly become a uh, convenient ally during a bitter, divisive election because he's going to um, leak information that is harmful to our political opponents, the people we're running against. Which, by the way, I don't have a problem with using information if he wants to leak it. You know, cool. Use it if it's true. But no, <clears throat> that's not good enough. It can't just be, hey, I didn't, I didn't tell Julian Assange to put this stuff out there. I didn't make him do it, but he did. Is it not true? No, no. He now, he now gets on Fox News. He gets affirmatively anointed by Sean Hannity. He's a hero. We've we've elevated him. And now I wonder what the people who did that during the last election as they watch him being led away in chains. And by the way, whose Justice Department is it that indicted that's charging him today? Who's just who's Justice Department? Uh, the American Justice Department no, under yeah, Donald Trump. Under Donald Trump, yeah. Huh. Okay. So the. The Trump administration's indicting the heroic Julian Assange, who was our big, who was our bestie during the 2016 election because he was going to help us get uh, Trump elected. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't make any sense. And the reason it doesn't make any sense is because we didn't we our we didn't have a strong enough faith in our belief system. 
as conservatives, we didn't have a strong enough faith that what we had observed to be true would carry the day. So we needed to engineer an outcome. In a way, um, it's, it's a little bit like the prince of the power of the air taking you up to the top of a temple and say, hey, you should fling yourself off of here just to show how much favor God has for you when he saves you from you committing this hurling act. That's in a way, that's what we did. We, we took a scorpion for a pet. And put our credibility and integrity as a movement at risk to do it, to get an outcome that we wanted. And now there's going to be a lot of people today, they're going to pretend and act like they never ever cozied up to this guy while they watch the Trump Justice Department lead him away in chains. Fascinating. And if you don't think those two events that I just linked together aren't linked, you're not paying attention to what's happening in the culture today. We're right not because we're better. We're right when we recognize that we're actually not. See, Maxine Waters believes she is the force that can alter history. And people like her believe this. As you like to say, Todd, they, and, and this is you quoting Obama's own statement from his original campaign, we are the people we've been waiting for. Glenn Beck once said something to me that has stuck with me. And, he's, and, and in fact, it's in the book Truth Bombs. He said, what's always fascinated him about his time in the conservative movement and conservative media is we are the people, we're the side that operates from the premise of faith openly and invoking providence and that there are forces at work for good beyond our control that can be relied upon and have proven themselves worthy. We're going to commemorate an event of that ultimate uh, proof of worthiness here in a couple of Sundays, right? Okay. And yet we go out there and scheme and machinate like we're totally on our own. And at the same time, like to quote and invoke these sources of providence. He pointed out it's one of the damnedest peculiar things he's seen during his time in, in the movement and in, in conservative media. And it reminds me of something you've heard me tell you and our audience about before. How many meetings I've been in with Christian leaders, names you would know, and they've always been the same. We start off, somebody prays, then we go around the room, and it's essentially a measuring contest. Who's got the biggest network, largest church, most subscribers, biggest platform, et cetera. That person then, of course, is given some anointing, you know, because apparently this in this format, size matters. Then about at the end, after the plan is made, someone's like, you know, let's pray and ask God to bless it. And Cain smiles because we handed God our humanistic offering once more and said, here, bless the offering we're willing to give. If you really want to know what separates the us from the them, if you really see this as left America and what's left of America as the us and the them, if you really want to know what separates the us and the them, it's humility. And when we cast it aside, we're no different. That's why I push back against nationalism. Nationalism de-incentivizes humility. The belief in the fatherland, the motherland, the homeland. You have some kind of legacy or birthright because of where you were born, where you're from. You're a Lannister. And we founded a country that said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. 
endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, Lannister or not. And what you see in Aaron's montage today is you see the same rake essentially being stepped on by both sides. Several people went out there and embarrassed themselves in this last election. Only to have Julian Assange leak information that was already publicized anyway. Remember that was, that was, remember that was CNN's big scoop on why Don Jr. was going to get indicted. Do you guys remember this? Because they got the email. Uh, he was, he went to Julian Assange to get WikiLeaks. They had uh, already leaked all this information. It was already publicized. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. And CNN had to correct that story. That's how Don Jr. was going down. It actually was uh, Google. They found it there. It was already out there. We went out and took a, 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 took a scorpion for a pet and got nothing out of it. There was no point to it. But it was all done in the emotional desperation to seek a desired outcome. Because if the outcome isn't what we believe it needs to be or should be, then maybe our beliefs are wrong. It's actually backwards. When your beliefs are right, then you'll get the outcomes you need and want. One one tact starts with humility. The other with eventual humiliation. Like what happened to Maxine Waters, for example. There is a very thin line between the Baramir and Faramir who believe they can put on the ring and they will do good things with it. And the Aragorn who knows better that he can't go anywhere near it because he can be corrupted by it as well. And that's our egos. That's, it's, it's really not church. It's not theism. It's something even more base. It's a more basic instinct. Because without humility, we don't do any of those things right either. We will twist and turn the scriptures to say whatever we want them to say every bit as much as Pete Buttigieg does. We'll do it. We've, we've pointed this out on this show. The man who leads the, the number one evangelical university on planet Earth literally went on CNN last year and said, well, you know, Trump didn't rape anybody. Humility is the difference. They believe they're special. So they were chosen. We need to believe we are chosen, and that's why we're special. That's the difference. Thoughts on that, gentlemen? Yeah, I, um, I was struck by watching Assange being hauled out of there. And how prideful he still was. <clears throat> now, the, the, in a, in the most general way possible, and we've done so on this show, you alluded to as much, but we've given pause to say, is is there something there? Yeah, I don't know if he's a rapist or not. That's why I didn't bring, I didn't bring right. up any of those charges in the UK. I don't know any of that. I don't know. But is there, in terms of what he found out, what he initially sought to do based on the gravity of the situation, we paused just like a lot of other people. But yeah, what what you really see, though, at the end of the day is uh, is a schemer. And he's he's proud of it 
to the bitter end, uh, which I, I it, it's helpful to us if we're paying attention because it's only at our own peril that we marginalize him as somehow a unique villain. He's the villain living inside of all of our hearts. And we're actually the ones that build up the foundation uh, as the schemers that allow men like him to rise upon. Yeah, you didn't need him. We, we, he offered you nothing. The, the, the return on investment for taking his baggage yeah. upon yourself. Was Hillary Clinton was not leader. bad enough? Yes. And in many, boy, I'm glad you put it that way. What more did we need to know about Hillary Clinton? How, how much lower could her negatives have gone that, that it was worth the cost of getting into bed with Julian Assange? Does that conversation sound familiar? What more do you need to know about Donald Trump that you need him to be a Russian stooge too? You need to make up a Russian collusion hoax. They need to they need to carry this on for two years. You don't know enough bad stuff already. Does this sound familiar at all? See, we're not far away from becoming what we're against, and that has been my number one concern the last few years on this show. The one thing holding us back is humility. The humility that says. Honor the Constitution. Honor the Bill of Rights. Look to tradition. Understand and know history. Yield to it. Abide to it. Follow and worship the one true God our rights come from. That's humility. When we cast all those things aside, we are just another vested interest vying for authoritative power against the other one. Okay? And, and it's no longer the American Revolution. It really is now. It's just Game of Thrones. It's just a nihilistic pursuit of power and hegemony. That's all that it is. And it just goes on and on and on and on like The Walking Dead. Has no end game. How many books did Martin write? Like 30 or something like that? And this series that everybody's gaga over is only like four of the books. It just goes on and on and on. Why? Because aside from a redemptive element that humbles us by holding us accountable, that judges the quick and the dead, human nature and sinfulness, our, our sinful nature will just go on and on. The drain circling will just go on and on. Empires rise, empires fall, on and on. Same old so story, same old song and dance, my friend. And I think that's the first time we have prophetically quoted Aerosmith in the history of this program. <laughs> Can I interject one sure. more thing as well? Um, remove... All of the names, all of the personas, all of the personalities, anything having to do with names over the course of the last 20 minutes, uh, specifically the first 10 that you started in on this, Steve, in light of the guest that we had earlier this week, um, the creator of Titania McGrath, Mm -hmm. you might be tricked into thinking that that's who we were describing and that's what we were talking about. She, uh, I'm sorry, they are legion. Just the uh, the it is the embodiment, the persona of cultism, of uh, tribalism. They are everywhere, uh, and that's that is really what we're talking about. Again, if we are willing to make anyone in anything and excuse anything in order to achieve an ends for self gratification, for self actualization, um, that's a hallmark not of faith, not of humility but of self-righteousness and id and really, at the end of the day, idolatry and cultism. Speaking of those two terms, so we have literally fought civil wars at CPAC over the log cabin Republicans. All right? And this has gone on 
since George W. Bush first acknowledged them. Like this has been a long waged war within the within the right. How much to normalize homosexuality, what what moral tradition is called sexual deviancy, how much is live and let live and personal liberty and not none of my business, limited government. We've got we've had all this all these arguments, right? How many we've had CPAC divorce ceremonies literally take place at CPAC over whether to mainline and mainstream or accept the, the group log cabin Republicans, right? Well, if the report from Big League Politics about Dan Crenshaw speaking at their fundraiser is true. Here's, here's, here's the lead of that story. In the entire history of the group, they've never endorsed the GOP presidential nominee. What were we arguing about? Do you know what that... So we're back to Rick Santorum on The View? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet, though, if there was, you know... So just a log cabin. They're not even Republicans. Uh, you know, um... You know, hovel, desert hovel uh, Republicans uh, for Muslim, atheist, vegan, pansexual, lizard people. I bet they would endorse the nominee, though. Arguing the the GOP establishment, arguing with its base about how much to mainline a group to show to virtue signal that it's not the haters the left claims they are, which then doesn't even turn around and support Republicans. I, I don't even know. That's <laughs> <I don't> even... <laughs> just. <laughs> What a waste. What a waste the Republican Party is. It's an airbag. That's what it is at best. More in a moment. We love to use our platform here at The Blaze to support uh, worthy causes, and perhaps no cause is worthier than taking uh, the Word of God to the ends of the earth, and that's where our friends at Back to Jerusalem come in. They are stationed in communist China, and the heart of their ministry is to take God's Word to every closed country between communist China and Jerusalem. So Iran, Somalia, North Korea, etc. And and why are these closed countries? Because these are oppressive regimes that are trying to close God's Word off from their people. They don't want to see them inspired. They don't want to see them hope-filled because people that are inspired and hope-filled have a tendency to be a lot less tolerant of being oppressed. If you want to help this ministry, so what they've done is they've taken the scriptures and they put them in an electronic downloadable form that's about as big of a pill that makes it easier to sneak past the gatekeepers in these closed countries. Their total cost from production to delivery of getting one of these electronic Bibles into the hands of somebody in one of these closed countries per unit is about 15 bucks. Okay, so that's the cost of you and a loved one or somebody you care about going to a fast food lunch today. If you've decided that this is worthy of spending your money today instead, uh, is getting the scriptures to as many people uh, that are persecuted around the world as we can, go to blazehelp.org, blazehelp.org, or give uh, Back to Jerusalem a call at 844-305-0566, 844-305-0566. Speaking of Jerusalem, we're going to go right back there right now. Uh, Joel C. Rosenberg is joining us from his home in Jerusalem, best-selling author, his new book, The Persian Gamble, yet another in his long list of bestsellers. And we want to welcome uh, Joel C. Rosenberg here to The Blaze. It's good to see you, Joel. How you been, brother? Hey, Steve. Good to be with you. Thank you. I'm well. Um, so, Joel, um, let's. I want to get to the books and and how they and why they've been successful. But I would be remiss... 
if we didn't start by the Israeli elections that happened yesterday and your read on the outcome and why it took place and what it means both there in Israel and then also here stateside? Well, Steve, it was a big shock. I think if, if you were for Netanyahu, it was a shock because Netanyahu and his uh, Likud party were running behind uh, in the polls for the entire campaign until, I mean, really, uh, for the entire campaign. I mean, he, they were closing the gap in the final week, but nobody thought that it was a, a sure thing. If you were against Netanyahu, then you were very uh, enthusiastic about ending his uh, 13 years uh, as prime minister. Uh, he's very close to becoming the longest-serving prime minister. And there is a large and growing sort of let's move on beyond BB you know, movement. Uh, so the re- results are fascinating. Uh, the final results will get late tonight, but the bottom line is uh, basically Netanyahu's party uh, got one more seat, it looks like, one more seat than the main opposition party. But in, in the end, the, big, the, the bigger deal is that it's a parliamentary system, so you have to build a coalition. And Netanyahu clearly has the, the, the clearest path to building a center-right coalition. So effectively for Israel and for the region, that means no major change in policy uh, or, or the personalities that will lead the country. Uh, but everybody woke up uh, surprised in some way, shape, or form uh, Wednesday morning. Polling in Israel, how, how accurate is it historically, Joel? Um, and was there some late-breaking event that uh, it would not have accounted for in the last couple of days, um, if it is accurate? Because you're right. I mean, he's, you're dealing with classic, you know, uh, incumbent fatigue. Uh, he is about to become the longest-serving prime minister of all time. He's, uh, his, you know, there've been scandal indictments and things of that nature. So, what 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 happened there for those polls to be wrong, or is this another situation where um, it's like a Brexit vote, and maybe people don't want to tell a pollster, "Hey, I'm going to vote in a way that won't get me honored by the uh, the 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 you know, the, uh, the enlightened people in Tel Aviv," and so that's why they were wrong. Well, I typically have a, a lot of problems, uh, Steve, uh, historically with polling, but I will say that I, I think that the Israeli uh, pollsters uh, overall uh, captured the dynamic, whether they got the specific numbers right or not. Uh, you, you know, you, you see that in Iowa and in the U.S. all the time. The, the bottom line was Netanyahu uh, was behind, his party was behind for the entire campaign, but the polls were showing that he was gaining ground uh, dramatically in the final week. Whether that was going to be enough, mm-hmm. nobody knew. That was the sort of X factor. The key is that Netanyahu is, as you mentioned, under three different criminal indictments right now. And his wife uh, has been indicted on an entirely different fourth criminal indictment. Now, this is not a witch hunt. It's by his own attorney general, the one that he appointed. Now, I give him the legal presumption of innocence, but obviously a lot of people, that was weighing heavily. Uh, you know, are we going to reelect a, a man who may need to spend more time defending himself, you know, than defending the country? And yet it shows the resilience of how well Netanyahu has done. Now, he's made some serious mistakes. And I, I worked for him 19 years ago. I didn't vote for him this time. Uh, I will tell you that, but I will say his strengths are very, very strong. 
Um, but he has some significant weaknesses. Um, and people decided, you know what? We'll find out whether he's guilty of something in a few months. But right now, he is leading the country, even with all his flaws, better than anyone has in, in any type of memory in Israel. So we're going to give him another shot. Best-selling author, Joel C. Rosenberg, uh, author of the bestseller, The Persian Gamble, out now. Our guest here today at The Blaze, joining us live from where he lives there in Jerusalem. Let's draw a parallel, Joel, if we could. You know, we a lot of us wondered, after the results of the 2016 election here, where he had a candidate with historically high negatives win, mainly because he was running against a candidate who had even higher historic negatives on the other side. Uh, But he ended up winning. Nobody saw, almost nobody saw it coming. And many of us wondered if it would cause the other side that lost an election they probably should not have lost, but made decisions like, let's not go visit one of the most important battleground states, Wisconsin, the entire campaign, stuff like that. Made us wonder, would they they exercise any self-awareness? Would they, would they ask themselves, how is it that Donald Trump, for all of his alleged incendiary language, actually performed a point or two better among Hispanic and black voters than Mitt Romney for all of his pandering did? Would they, would they ask themselves, how could they have possibly turned off enough of the electorate to only win 15% of the counties? And what we've seen is there, was no, there, there will be no self-awareness. We're going to march even further to the left, and we are essentially going to hammer and sickle this son of a gun. That's what the Democrats are doing in America right now, as you well know. <laughs> right. I'm wondering, the, the more liberal op- position in Israel, given what you just said about Netanyahu under multiple indictments from his own appointed attorney general, not to mention typical incumbency fatigue anyway, the fact they still could not beat him, is it going to cause them to say, you know, have we, have we told the Israeli people that nominating us and putting us in power instead, is, you know, upsets their, the, the, the faith in, they have in their security as a people? Is there any self-awareness going to happen there amongst the opposition parties in Israel? Well, I would say yes, but I, I well, you would love to be here, Steve. I got to tell you, you, you particularly, because I know you, and I, and I like you, and I think you'd be fascinated, because Israel is a post leftist country. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating here is the left didn't run against him. There is no left anymore. I, and, and I know that's hard to imagine in a Western democracy, but... All right, he's, he's, is he breaking up on us? All right, let's try to get him. We'll try to reset with him here in yep. just a second, Aaron. All right, you know what's funny though, Todd, is he, is, he is be, was beginning to say, right when he broke up, exactly what Daniel Horowitz said yesterday yeah. on the show when Did- we were talking about this. Uh, which is the uh, there is no traditional leftist. Didn't you see political. me packing my bags? Right I was now? I was actually about to ask Joel. Hey, tell me about the exchange rates. Yeah, what well, are those no, like? Listen, this is a point we've talked about on the show before. The importance of voting with our feet. Uh, we all may in our lifetime, Steve, may, may be forced to to go somewhere, welcome other people here in ways that we never thought before because the place you live in just will not accept your worldview anymore. And, uh, I mean, heck, we do this in, in jest, like, which, like, I've always, Steve, what, just a month ago, you said, oh, New Zealand seems nice. So what are the tax rates there, the places you'd be willing to go? Uh, and in- increasingly, Israel, perhaps, is the face of that place that maybe not us, but maybe our our, our children um, are, are are forced to honestly flee to. All right, we've got him back now here. Joel, you were telling us about Israel has become a post-leftist country. Finish that point, please. Yeah, sorry about the, the connection. Yeah, it's fascinating. You would love it here. I mean, because it's, <laughs> it's, it's 
We wish this could be the case in the United States. What's happened in the dynamic here in Israel, and we can talk about why in a moment, but the center has, has blown up. There is no, I'm sorry, the left. The left has blown up. There is no, there is no left here. There, the, all the people on the left moved to the center in the last 10 years. Mm. The people in the center moved to the right, and the people on the right moved to the far right. And I don't mean extremist. I just mean really hardcore. So the only path to a coalition in Israel is center-right. There is no path. Literally no me. path. Now, the guys who ran against Netanyahu are three former chiefs of staff of the Israeli army. Okay? These are not leftists. Bibi tried to paint them as leftists, but that's sort of his political shtick. But there is no left. These were the toughest, strongest soldiers in Israeli history. And together, they couldn't beat Netanyahu. That wasn't a matter of of them not being strong on security or these issues. It was that they were new to politics, that they, that they weren't a known quantity. And Netanyahu, look, Netanyahu has a lot of flaws. If you want, we can talk about them. But what he's good at, he's very good at. Unemployment in Israel, it's 3.6%. We have record um, uh, tourism every year. We haven't been in a major war in you know, since 2000 or 2001. Yeah, we have, we have problems here. Don't get me wrong. Netanyahu has diplomatically opened the door to China, to India, to Brazil, to the Arab states, to Latin America, to uh, sub-Saharan Africa. He, President, or Prime Minister Netanyahu single-handedly took on President Obama on the Obama uh, insane Iran nuclear deal and not only stared him down, but then persuaded President Trump to scrap the deal and reimpose sanctions on Iran. Just that alone, you can understand why a lot of Israelis say, listen, the guy has got flaws, but have we ever seen an Israeli prime minister deliver for the, one of the smallest countries on the planet? We are operating at, at superpower st- levels. Do we really want to give that up until we have to? Joel, I've got two more questions on this that may seem completely trivial, but trust me, they're directly related to this conversation. Number one, what's the exchange rate uh, uh, if our American currency are like there right now in Israel? And then number two, you guys are about six hours ahead of us uh, here in uh, the central time zone. What kind of access and DVR uh, capability do you have to like uh, live U.S. Uh, sporting events over there? Again, just... Just out of curiosity. Okay, wow. Never been asked those questions. All right, well, let's go. Steve, you keep me on, your, on my toes. I got I to gotta tell you. So if you really want to know, we are uh, the, the, the shekel strengthened dramatically against the dollar because of Netanyahu's re-election. Uh, we're at 3.52 shekels per the dollar, if that means anything to you or your, or your audience. Number one, uh, stock market's taking off. Uh, economy is, is, is running at 5% plus or better. I mean, it really, it's, it's a, we're a high-tech superpower. Mm. In terms of, uh, and, and on the high-tech side, Israel is one of the leaders. Almost everything in your phone and most of the things in your laptop computer were invented in Israel uh, for Intel, Google, all the rest, but they have their research and development centers here. And that's why I say it really is a high-tech superpower uh, country now. So, Yes, we can watch uh, everything live, uh, including all the major networks, even the ones we don't like. Uh, yeah, everything's available here. I think, you know, 
maybe there's a show. Maybe the Blaze should have a show that airs every day from Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, you yeah. have a, a, a bureau chief here. I'm not. I, I, I am. I am. I am being tempted here in real time. Yes. As a matter of fact, you do it live from Joel Rosenberg's spare bedroom in his basement. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, the, go ahead, how Joel. How many posts left can you come to? Right. I yes. Mean, this is pretty impressive here. We've but, got problems, but we're also trying to solve them. Your new book, The Persian Gamble, another bestseller, and. Your unique approach here of taking uh, end times theology and applying it to contemporary real world events, and and they're they're well written, yes, all right. So, I me, mean, obviously, you're a man that has the gift of gab. You have the turn of a phrase. You know how to use that operate uh, the pen, being mightier than the sword. But what, beyond your talent, what is the secret sauce to why this series of books have been so successful, Joel? Well, I would say that some of my novels in the past have had uh, an element of Bible prophecy woven in, like what would happen if those ancient prophecies came true in our lifetime. That's true, and I enjoy that. This current series does not involve that. But the, but the, the common denominator between each set of these series that I write, including the first gamble, is that they have the feeling that they could happen tomorrow, um, and and that's a strange thing, right? I'm not predicting that, that my scenarios, my worst case scenarios will come true. I'm saying, what if, you know, what if they did? Mm-hmm. And in this case, I was literally in the Oval Office with President Trump, my first meeting with him six, seven weeks ago. Uh, I was having lunch with Pence. Pence took me into the, White, into the Oval Office. And, I, and the president asked me about the novel. I said, and we were just getting to know each other. And I said, well, let me give you the elevator pitch. The Persian Gamble is about this. What if the Iranian regime took the $150 billion that the Obama administration gave them for agreeing to that insane nuclear deal that, thank God, you scrapped, Mr. President. But what if they took that money and went to North Korea secretly to try to buy off the shelf a half dozen fully operational nuclear warheads? Mm. And he just sat back and he said, wow, well, how do you know they're not doing that already? It's like, well, Mr. President, I'm, I'm trusting that you and your national security team are working hard every day to make sure the Persian gamble never happens. But when you can sit in the Oval Office and, and give a, a one paragraph, one sentence pitch to the president of the United States on what your novel is about, and he sits back and goes, oh, that's, you know, that's scary. Like that could happen. Uh, then you know you're doing something right. Joel C. Rosenberg, his latest bestseller, The Persian Gamble. Good to talk to you, my friend. Thanks for joining us here today uh, from your home there in Jerusalem on the blaze. God bless, all right? You too, thanks. Take care. Hey, last year, late last year, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office released a grand jury report noting that law enforcement there had received a couple of thousand complaints about deed fraud, and almost all of them involved a, I guess we'll call it a faulty notarization, meaning somebody was trying to forge their way onto a title. And the problem was so bad, this report even described it as a, quote, epidemic. Criminals are looking for vulnerable properties right now. Scammers are scanning the obits, pouring through public records. And it can take as little as a forged notary signature, a forged deed to transfer ownership, and it can be almost impossible to reverse once it happens. Our homes, for most of us as Americans that are blessed to get a chance to own a home, it's going to be the most valuable investment we're going to make in our lifetimes. Protect it. Don't let this happen to you, especially when for just pennies a day, 
Uh, our friends at Home Title Lock will make sure that it does not. They will put a virtual barrier around your home and its title and mortgage. You can go to HomeTitleLock.com right now. Register your home to learn if your title's already been targeted or compromised. And if you register your home right now, it's free. It's called a free title scan and report, normally $100 value. But it's free today for our family at The Blaze. If you go to HomeTitleLock.com, that's HomeTitleLock.com. Texas may have some yeah. competition, gentlemen. Land of milk and honey, you might say. I, I, you know, <laughs> nice. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Especially if you're telling me, if, if I've got now two men whose opinions on this matter I respect among the, the most of anybody on planet Earth have told me this now two days in a row. Daniel told me this yesterday. Joel Rosenberg just told me this today. That this is a post-leftist Israel. Texas is now... Yeah, is is what two point eight points shy of electing Beta O'Rourke to the U.S. Senate? I I may have a new a me a new relocation, Mistress guys. Me, the ugly American, like another country. Who thought it? Hour two is next. Stay tuned. We're back with Hour 2, live and on demand on The Blaze. I'm Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. 888-900-3393 is the number to The Blaze. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address for the show. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Like us on Facebook a lot, actually. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. You know, there might be another reason for me to move over to Jerusalem. If all the tech giants are over there, maybe I can get unbanned, unshadow banned on Facebook, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Hey, um, if if you've noticed, maybe it's getting harder and harder to get your kids to eat their vegetables, even their fruit anymore, because how many of us are eating either of those things? Uh, the American diet has radically been altered by the way we process and consume food in our modern times, and there's pluses and minuses to it. Uh, there's always trade-offs, but one of the trade-offs in this case is a lot of us simply are not getting uh, the vitamins, minerals, uh, the antioxidants, um, the antioxidant power, the prebiotic, the probiotic. Have you noticed how there's this new growth industry of foods now that are saying, hey, this is loaded with vitamin D. Uh, this is loaded with um, you know uh, antioxidants. Why, why? If you go back and you watched food commercials, 30, 40 years ago. It's amazing how much I've learned the last few years watching a whole bunch of classic college football games during the summer on YouTube where all the old commercials are all in there too. It, I mean, the food commercials are just totally different. Totally different. Because the the assumption is, you know, we're not, they weren't, they weren't selling mass vitamin formulas in the 70s and 80s because the assumption was most of the food we ate had a lot of that stuff already in there. And a lot of times the vitamins were actually targeted at the kids. Why? Because it was harder to get them to have a well-rounded diet. And so you needed more of a supplement where that stuff's concerned. This is where our friends at Brickhouse Nutrition come in. Uh, they're a team of physicians and they've got this product out called Field of Greens. That's not a supplement, even though it's a good supplement to the way you eat. But, but if you turn over the label, it's not going to say supplement facts. It's going to say nutrition facts because this is real food. It's real USDA certified organic fruits and vegetables in a, in a, in a nutritious and delicious powder that you can mix with any water-based drink. 
And it's a lot like those uh, naked drinks you buy at the store. Uh, it tastes just like those. It just doesn't have 75 grams of sugar. So if you want to give this a shot, I'd highly recommend it. This is another product from Brickhouse that I like to use on a frequent basis as well. BrickhouseSteve.com is the website. It's called Field of Greens. BrickhouseSteve.com, 15% off of your first order. If you use my name, Steve, as a promo code at BrickhouseSteve.com. Just to, before we get to the truth bomb, to kind of reset what we heard from Joel C. Rosenberg, and I didn't know this was going to happen, but it was very similar to the analysis we heard in the same time slot yesterday uh, from Daniel Horowitz about the political conditions on the ground in Israel. And I've already gotten a few questions from people having heard Daniel in Jerusalem, Daniel in in um, suburban Baltimore, and Joel C. Rosenberg in suburban Jerusalem. From uh, they're a half a planet away from each other almost, and they said the exact the exact same analysis. <laughs> And so several of you have already emailed me during the break, like, what's gone on over there, you know? And we were actually just talking about it ourselves during the commercial break. I, I, I think it's what Daniel said yesterday, that their enlightened progressive classes tried to do to them what ours is trying to do to us. Tried to manufacture a world the way they, they want it to be seen. They tried. And I even said this to you yesterday. You know, Shimon Perez came over here with Yasser Arafat, the original gangster, the OG of Islamic radical terrorism, modern Islamic radical terrorism. Um, and it had, you know, they wined and dined each other at, uh, at the White House in the Clinton years. Tried to give them almost everything they wanted other than Israel's disbandment. So they tried. They tried to go down these roads. The problem was their enemy would not permit, their enemies would not permit them to. After decades of, a, of trying to enlighten themselves out of a civilization, they too finally had to accept reality. Reality bites, man. And it bites back unless you acknowledge that it's real. I think it's just that simple. And, and I think, and I also do think, as Daniel talked about this, that part of that acceptance of reality, you know, it can work one of two ways, right? I mean, traditionally, there's a, there's a, if you look at human history, the acceptance of reality is the accoutrement of, of spiritual revival. But sometimes it can work the other way around too. Meaning, it goes back to that word I used at the top of the show today. An acceptance of reality, you know what, when, what word some, is the definition of the acceptance of reality? Humility. That that's almost an act of, almost an act of repentance in a way is what humility is. We are not the people we've been waiting yes, for. Yes, we're not. You know, we got to make some changes around here. And so I, and that, that then can also then set the stage for revival because you, you be, you, the contrition of the acknowledgement in a way of your own civic sins also has a way of, if, if it's true that allowing yourself to sink into sin as a state of being for you can dull the spiritual sentences or senses of your own individual walk or your culture's spiritual walk, then the reverse would be true too. The acknowledgement of said things makes you more sensitive and more available to the spiritual senses at the exact same time. Um, that's a high cost to pay though. You, know, you want to move to the country, and you want to move to the country that, is like, stop this train, I want to get off. You want to move to that country. I want to go there. You don't want to go to the country that's on the highway to hell that's merging on. 
You know, we haven't had to pay. We're starting to see some of that now. But we haven't had to pay the daily cost of, is this the day my children get sent to me home in a box when the suburban mall gets bombed? We're starting to go down these roads now more and more. But it's not yet a daily part of our way of life yet, where we're factoring that into the math of how we live our lives. What, what missiles get dropped, what bombs get dropped, which threats get made. You know? If you're, I may, maybe the move to Texas, I'm too late. Because if you're flirting with the Beto O'Rourke's of the world, then at the very least, maybe you're not merging onto that interstate. But at the very least, you're standing outside your back door, looking, gazing upon it, wondering, I wonder what it's like to drive on that road. You're at least thinking about it. On the other hand, over there in Israel, they're like, dude, man, been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, double duty, bro. We can tell you where that ends. Yasser Arafat is a hero. Abbas becomes co-president. That ends in a dark, dark place. Yeah, it's, it's right. something I mentioned too during the break. I mean, not to interrupt you, but the, the interesting paradox is that the longer we continue to pursue our Pleasant Valley Sundays, everything is shiny, happy people – here, the less able we are to coexist with our neighbor, mm-hmm. the less they pursue the Pleasant Valley Sundays, meaning, i.e., what you just said, accepting reality for what it is, it seems the more they are able to coexist with their own fellow countrymen. Um, and it's because of that, it's because of that reality piece, uh, accepting of reality, the humility piece that you were just talking about. That is a very interesting dynamic and one I think that we should have our eyes wide open to. I mean, they have, they might be the only country in the world that I can think of, for example, to go to your point, Aaron, that has figured out how, how you can have (laughs) almost maximum religious freedom with massive gay pride rallies down Main Street, Tel Aviv at the same time. And... And and the only way it hasn't become an either-or proposition for them over there is the, the two groups that may want to take advantage of both of those life experiences may not like each other, may not have a lot in common, and may view each other as, uh, you know, not able to occupy the same space at the same time. But they also are of the realization that right across that dome over there is a group of people that would that would debate each other on which of their throats to slit first, but all their throats would end up slit if they could. You know what I'm trying to say? There'd be dragons, man. Yeah, yeah, that they understand that as much as we may not, you know, we're not going to probably settle our differences about of opinion about what's moral and what God permits and what he does not uh, in this life. But the people over there on the other side of that dome, they're going to send us in the next life in the snap of a finger if we allow them to which kind of makes this debate not nearly as prevalent as maybe it seems right now when left to our own devices without such an external threat. I thought you were going to say they were the only Western democracy to come back from going progressive. I was going to call them the Southern Baptists of the Middle East, but you know, that's... Uh, and it's just funny day. we should say that because what, what are they debating in the Southern Baptist Convention right now? They're kind of having the debate yeah. of going back to the stuff that they defeated in the 70s and 80s. Yep. Isn't that what they're debating right now? Yeah, basically. All right, let's get to today's truth bomb. Speaking, well, that's a good segue, knowing what's coming. All right, brought to you by, there's nothing new under the sun, and my new book, Truth Bombs, Confronting the Lies, Conservatives Believed Our Own Demise, available everywhere Kamala Harris's books are sold. Or you can just go buy your copy right now on Amazon.com. Thank you to all of you that have done that. Leave us a five-star review if you've read the book and you like it. We would appreciate that as well. Endorsed by Glenn Beck, Mark Levin, 
uh, Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino, uh, Matt Walsh, you know, people you like more than us. All right. So, you know, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, you learn, I've actually learned a lot in the summertime, getting ready, getting stoked for football season, going online, watching old classic college football games with the commercials embedded. And one of the things you, that I've noticed is they had, they is, is a lot of the same political arguments we're, we're, they were having then. But the temperament was different, and then and and the and the response from our side was much more confrontational, much more provocative, much more year of no BS, much less apologizing. Well, you know, just to prove to you, I'm not a racist. I'll meet you with your phony baloney jailbreak seventy percent. You know what I'm saying? That and and I and and it really strikes you that you know. We didn't wake up one day and we got here. And the reason pagans don't like slippery slope arguments is they're undefeated for all time. They've never lost. I've never lost a slippery slope argument. They're always right. They always turn out to be true. Um, and and for further uh, for further reinforcement of that, uh, Rick is one of our listeners, and he sent me this email recently. He said, I saw this, this in a comment on a blog that I follow, and this deals with theological errors, but it's exactly what you say about progressivism. And it's from a book written in 1872. 1872, guys. Here's the quote. Quote, error establishes itself through three stages. Number one, the errorists say to the majority, we ask for toleration we are few and tentative. Do not be afraid. Only let us alone and we shall not disturb you. This is from 1872. I'm like, holy crap, I've done this show a lot. Yeah. All right, 1872. Nothing new under the sun. Just new people under the sun that haven't heard it yet. Number two, after gaining their way for a time, they ask for equal rights with truth. Quote, it shows bigotry if the truth demands superior rights, it is only fair that we should agree to differ on two opinions because we can both still agree on teaching that is absolutely fundamental and where we differ is non-essential. I, I, I want to move to Jerusalem now. Like right now, right now I want to quit and just move. Okay. I, I, number three. Finally, Error goes on to its natural end, which is to assert supremacy. Error now recommends that the original truth must be rejected and demands that the church put teachers in place who will repudiate the original faith and instruct others to eradicate it. And this is from a book in 1872 called The Conservative Reformation by Charles F. Krauth is his name. And one of our listeners, Rick, sent me this citation. This book was published. It's from pages 195 to 96. Let me give me the page numbers. This book was published in 1872. Todd, your depression level at the moment, go. You're going to be surprised. I'm actually encouraged. I think I know why you're going to be encouraged, but explain. Uh, the fact that God keeps his promises, there's always light in the darkness, the fact that these timeless truths, somebody will be at the corner 
yelling them out for all to hear. Now we have to choose whether we uh, follow them or accept them, but uh, man, that it is not, it, it's, we, we talk all the time about how the truth, uh, it, it, it might be hard, but it, it's still simple. Mm-hmm. This is, man, that is simplicity right there, laying it out. And if we only open our eyes to see, it's, we, you know, we don't need to solve the Rubik's Cube. We just need to open our eyes and see. You know what answer I thought you were going to give? And you, you started there and then didn't go there. I thought the answer you're going to give is, this is the perspective. You Protestants have your ups and downs swings on these things. Because you're always dissolving, forming new sects. There's all you're always are you're always creating a new branch to respond to the new attack, to the latest heresy. This is just the ebbs and flow. We Catholics see this as the as the natural ebbs and flows wow. of you know the city of man vis-a-vis alongside the city of God. You thought I, I thought was going that, full summa theologica? I, I, I over thought the top? that. I, especially when I teed it up for you like that. Okay, I thought that was the answer you were going to give. I was even giving you a chance to give that answer. That's just your conscience talking, man. <laughs> this is between. Todd. This is clearly between you and God, brother. Uh, we'll I welcome you, you know, with open arms on Easter Sunday. That is such a good comeback. Yeah. I'm going to let it stand. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to let it stand on its own. That's this great. reminds me of um, of in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the horse and his boy. Uh, and really, it's it's not it's not that specific story, but uh, th- we hear about this god of the Kellerman Empire, Tash, and you know he's just kind of here and there. He's in a faraway land. Uh, by the time the last battle comes along, it's Tash the Inexorable, Tash the Irresistible, uh, Tash save us. That's kind of what we're talking about here. Any toleration of error, like actual error whatsoever, on any level, um, is there's always the possibility. We're going to end up, you know, going from we'll tolerate this. It's over there in the corner for a while. To uh, we we are not worthy of Tash. We we love you. That's mm. that's that's pretty much um, what the risk we run minus spiritual discernment. Uh, what does Todd say all the time? Uh, Why is the serpents innocent of doves? Or Todd quotes all the time. Why is the serpents is it innocent of uh, as doves? Um, that's the risk we run when we do not follow through on that let's get to theology thursday with that introduction brought to you by real estate agents i trust which was started because there is a lot of frustration that goes along with buying or selling a home and uh, glenn beck and some of his friends had experienced that firsthand tired of real estate agents who talked a good game uh, and made promises their results could not deliver when called upon and needed the most so they started a company called real estate agents i trust and what sets it apart from a lot of these other referral agencies you'll find across the country uh, is those are really done for the benefit of the realtor uh, helping him or her find clients and hey, they 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 still try their best, but it, it starts from the premise of let's let's get the realtor business. In this case, this is about you, the client, finding a realtor that is worthy of you. And so these are agents around the country that have been vetted, they've been scrutinized, they've been transparent about their results, held accountable, and that's why they have been uh, they they've been chosen and said, hey, you're good enough to be selected as a real estate agent that our audience can trust. So um, if you want to buy and or sell your home at the right time for the right price this year, visit the website, realestateagentsitrust.com. That's realestateagentsitrust.com.
So we began this uh, series last week, a three-part series uh, heading in uh, to Easter. And last week we looked at one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, the adulterous woman. And we looked at an adulterous generation. And, and we looked at all of the major players in this story and how there is a modern, contemporary, practical application for all of these care in, who are real individuals, but in the culture we live in today, they're kind of archetypes for who we are as a people too. And how we could be every single one of those characters in the story, depending on the path that we choose. And, and we're going to make the same application now to the broader cultural conflict that was at play at the time of, 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 of Jesus's earthly ministry. And so our, our Theology Thursday this week is called, Who Did the People Say That I Am? And, and that's a direct citation from one of Jesus's most famous messages when he takes his disciples about a full day's walk away from their normal stomping grounds to a place called Caesarea Philippi. We'll get to that and why that's important in a second. But, but I think we need to understand what the threat that Christ presented the status quo represented in that day because it's the same threat that he represents today. You know, there's a reason why we went through this 10 or 15 years ago. We went through this, you know, uh, war on Christmas. And you know, I used to say often at the time when that was going on, 2,000 years later and a baby born in a barn is still making all kinds of people nervous. Why? Because he represents a threat to our status quo. And we saw in the story of, that we looked at last week, he, Christ represents a threat to our status quo as individuals, as individuals, as sinners, that either like our sin um, or like judging others for theirs while not being held accountable for ours, right? We looked at that from an individual angle. But he represents a status quo threat on a holistic cultural level as well. And there's really, and you can see that represented in the three entities that he is taken before at the time of his arrest. They represent various forms of the status quo. They were the literal status quo of the fallen world at the time in which they lived, but they represent, we have all these archetypes alive in our culture today too. And you start, for example, with Rome, where Rome is the consolidation of the world system. It is it is the seat of power on this planet. It is the center of academia. It is the center of the arts. It is the center of language. It is the center of technology. It is the center of culture. It is certainly the military might of the world at this time. And when it, and, and upon acquiring that power, 
once once a human endeavor reaches that level of power, the number one thing it will then seek to do is hold on to it. And you see this represented in the way Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Rome, the, the way he is attempting to navigate this debate. There is a real earnest theological debate happening between Jesus and the Sanhedrin and within the Sanhedrin itself, and we'll talk about them in a second. But that, that's a real debate. Is this carpenter from Nazareth the Messiah? Is he the son of David? Is he the anointed one? Is he the Christ? Rome doesn't care. What Rome cares about is Rome's interests. And you can believe Jesus is flower power. You can believe he's Iron Man. You can believe whatever you want. We don't care as long as it doesn't get in the way of our power. But the minute you start believing something, the minute your belief he is the Messiah or isn't gets in the way of our power, now it's, a, now it's an us problem. And so at first, Rome has really no interest in what Jesus is doing. They've got bigger fish to fry. They're, they don't really care about, a, you know, Lazarus, Lazarus dead for four days. You know, two-mile walk outside of Jerusalem in a cave gets raised. They don't care. You know, they're, they're conquering Germania. You know what I'm saying? They, got, they, don't, they, got, they don't give a rip. Doesn't, they don't have other problems. They won't care until they're made to care. That it gets in the way of their power, their hegemony. And then once the problem is brought to them, they have no interest in the higher principle involved. None. Because the only principle that matters to them is power. In a way, if you look at the scene in the Gospel of John, Jesus is, you almost get the sense Jesus is brought before Pilate almost, and, and Pilate meets with him privately, almost like this is an, a political entree. Give me something here so I can just make this go away and we'll get through this Sabbath and, or this Passover and you do your thing and we'll move on here. He's, he's not interested in what the higher argument is. He asked Jesus, hey, you know, are you a king? What are you doing here? What's your purpose here? Jesus says, for this reason, I came into this world to testify to the truth. And Pilate's response is in many respects what you saw from Jerry Nadler yesterday with the shrug. Chaos Veritas. I'm the prefect of Rome. What is truth? Okay. You know, here's what the truth is. Power. That's the truth. And so how will Jesus's detractors get Pilate to act? See, Roman law permitted the Jews an undue amount compared to the other people of religious liberty. And it's because the, the commitment that the Jewish people had to their faith, the Romans just didn't think it was worth, you know, dying over religious disputes, given the level of commitment. The, the Jews were not as willing to assimilate into Greco-Roman religion as much as most of the other 
nations conquered by the Roman Empire were. So they gave them a level of religious liberty that was unique in the empire. But there were limitations. One of the limitations, for example, is they could not uh, practice ritualistic or religious execution. Uh, that can only be done by the civil authority. So they've got to convince, they'd have to convince the Romans to do it. And one of the ways they convince the Romans to do it is they say to Pilate, um, if you don't do this, you are, quote, no friend of Caesar. Now, that's a very powerful phrase in Roman history at that time. You know, this was not, this was not, in a, this was not a position or an assignment that you, stri- that you strived for in the Roman hierarchy. It would, they, the Jews were considered a very pesky people to rule because of their courage of convic- convictions and their commitments. This was sort of, you know, you're in purgatory. You're, this is the probationary period. You're in a form of, ex, you're on exile island here uh, for, if you've watched Survivor. All right, you've got to earn your way back into our good graces. And for the locals to report back, you're no friend of Caesar. The number one thing you wanted to be, particularly because Caesar is Lord. The number one thing you wanted to be was a friend of Caesar. So Pilate is already on his political last legs. He's, he's been warned. And so he cannot afford another uprising. And even though he's the one that ultimately issues the kill order, he has the unmitigated gall to then wipe his hands of the matter and say, I'm not responsible for this. When it's his signet, it's his seal that alone in, in Jerusalem could, could cause the execution of a prisoner. He's, he is responsible for it. Does any of this, any of this sound familiar to you at all? Any things you see in the news or any particular pursuits you follow whatsoever? Any of it familiar to you on any level whatsoever? What's good or bad is determined by what gives us the power we, that we crave and retains us the power we already have. And that is what good and bad is determined by. And that's how an all-powerful, or viewing itself to be, an all-powerful state believes and behaves, whether they speak Latin, Greek, or English. We'll come back. More Theology Thursday here live and on demand on The Blaze in a moment. We'll look at the other two seats of power. And then we'll look at Christ himself, who claims to be the real power. Next. here live and on demand on the blaze studies say it doesn't take long maybe a couple of months and about 80 percent of us who make those new year's resolution uh will new year's resolutions will be losing our re- resolve in said resolutions by about the time springtime hits particularly when it comes to the resolution that's the most popular one getting healthier losing weight etc now let's face it a lot of times this fails because we fail we didn't do what we committed to do all right but sometimes it fails because 
we tried. I mean, we really gave it our darndest and then still didn't see the results. And this is even more commonplace the older we get because our metabolisms just aren't what they used to be. Particularly if we struggled with being active and being over, being inactive and being overweight for many years, that really does a lot to, uh, to, to petrify, for lack of a better word, our metabolic rates. Getting them restarted is hard. And then after getting them restarted, regulating them. Because then you can still, you know, end up overeating uh, when you're uh, getting active again, and and then you never see the, you know, the net loss that you're looking for in your weight. Here's a possible solution I want you to try. It's called Riduzone, and it's not a stimulant. Uh, it's it's only got three ingredients. One of them's rice. One of its primary ingredients is called OEA, which is one of the primary ingredients you find in olive oil, and our bodies produce it as well. Uh, and it's just that our bodies produce less of it the older we get. And and this really is a metabolic regulator. It, it both helps to stoke the metabolism on one end and then uh, send the signal, hey, I'm, I'm full, stop eating on the other. If you want to give this a shot, there's a couple of options for you. You can just drink an entire bottle of olive oil a day. That's one option. Uh, the other option is just one capsule of Riduzone. All right, and you can get 30% off a three-month supply of Riduzone right now. If you use my name, Steve, as a promo code when you go to the website, riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E. Promo code Steve, riduzone.com. All right, let's get back to Theology Thursday. And part two of our three-week series leading up to Easter. And this week, we're, we're taking a look at who do the people say that I am and all the various powers that are at play in the Easter story. So we've looked at the first power, the seat of worldly power, and that's Rome. What you're going to see is all of these powers and principalities are all still at work and in, in, are contesting and contending with each other in our day, right now in our culture, right now, right? The second power I want us to talk about is the, is the seat of Herod, all right? So uh, this is Herod's son. This is not the Herod of Jesus's birth, who executes the, the young uh, male children of Israel as a way of trying to eradicate the Messiah, all right? That was so-called Herod the Great. He was an Idumean, which is another word of saying he was an Edomite, all right? So um, he claimed a loose affiliation with Jewish lineage through, um, through that would be what, Esau, right? And not through Jacob, that's the Edomites, if I remember my history correctly, okay? Um, and, and he curried a lot of favor. He tried to attempt to curry a lot of favor with the Jewish people with renovations of the temple and other public um, uh, uh, recognitions of the Jewish faith. And you see this portrayed pretty accurately in the Nativity Story movie where you see Harry the Great taking part in public ceremonies of, you know, of, of, you know from the old, the old Testament, you know, animal sacrifices to cover sins, things of that nature. He was very big into public displays of, uh, of Jewish recognition in order to curry favor with the people because he was also very violent, evil, wicked. And so this is what he did to kind of cover for himself. And one of the sons that survived his wickedness is now, is now the quote unquote king uh, of Israel at this time. But he is largely, this is largely a symbolic seat because he's neither recognized as the religious authority, the Sanhedrin is, nor is he the ultimate civil authority. Uh, the prefect is, you know, since everybody's talking about Game of Thrones right now, I'll use a Game of Thrones reference. Uh, Pilate is the hand of the king here. He's the real power. Herod's Joffrey. He has a crown. He can rant and rave and he can licentiousness himself, uh, but he, he's not really the one calling the shots here. 
And so when Jesus is brought before him, as he's kind of passed around as they're bureaucratically, you know, kicking the can down the road of who's going to deal with this situation, when he's brought to him, you have to understand that Herod is not unaware of who Christ is. He has been subjected to constant barrages of ridicule from his cousin, John the Baptist. The one that John, he's the one, he is the one who cuts John the Baptist's head off because Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, is publicly flogging him for, really, for incest, according to the Jewish law. He has married his brother's wife without a death. He just took him, took her away. And so he is being accosted publicly, flogged publicly. He's very aware of what is happening culturally at this time. It's not like, hey, you know, who is this guy? No, they know. They're, they're, they just don't care. And what they want is a show. What Herod's palace wants is in between, in between their depravities, they want to be entertained. They're not interested in anything of any serious value, anything tangible whatsoever. This is a nihilistic enterprise. Does that sound familiar? Any places of any power or influence in in our culture today that that would describe? Hmm. In many respects, you could say Herod's palace is the seat in that culture of postmodernism. No beauty, no truth. Just wanton desire, sensuality, materialism, nothing else. Does that sound familiar at all? Next, we have the religious, the religious authority, the religious seat of power. And this is the Sanhedrin. And to understand this dynamic, you really got to know your Jewish history, where this comes from. For example, the Pharisees, according to some traditions, they trace their lineage back to Ezra, who's a heroic figure in the Old Testament, a heroic figure in Jewish history, who rededicated the temple, for example, after the, after the diaspora. Um, the, the groups that made up the, the Sanhedrin were two, for lack of a better description, and I don't mean this to be demeaning in any way, so please don't take it as such, but I'm going to use this to make an, an, an analogy. They were really the two warring political parties. Because you have to understand, in the, in the Jewish tradition, their, their separation of church and state as we know it in the West is not a philosophical enterprise. I mean, they, they, they are a people that began as a direct theocracy where God was in charge. And then God was still in charge, but through human authorities that he rose up and took down. All right, so there, there, we don't have branches of government here. All right, this is not, this is not a, a post-Protestant Reformation debate about spheres and branches of government and separation of church and state. We're, we're, you know, we're more than an eon before those arguments are going to take place in modern thought and philosophy. So... Since the the laws and the customs were governed by and originated largely from the religious teaching, these this, these were really, in many respects, what we, we we would the way that they would hold court, 
the way that they would meet debate. We would see them as a legislative body, as a political body, according to a Western mind that's not familiar with how first century Judaism conducted its affairs. And if you looked at the, the, two, the two main parties in this group, one is known as the Pharisees. They take their religion and orthodoxy very seriously. You'll note that when we, when, in fact, when we hear of men from the Sanhedrin who become friendly to Jesus' message, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, they're Pharisees, not Sadducees. They're Pharisees. The Pharisees ultimately believed in a judgment and a resurrection. They, they, they were serious about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, to borrow a phrase from one of Jesus' most famous prayers. Um, the, 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 and they were up against the Sadducees who denied that there was a resurrection. And therefore, in many respects, if there's no resurrection, they're de facto denying an ultimate judgment. And they were people that would have, they, they would have been the party very focused on, shall I say, social justice. The means to an end in this life. Their leader, a man named Caiaphas, was high priest this year. In some respects, you could see the Pharisees, if we, wanted to, if we wanted to truly Americanize this, the Pharisees are the Republicans. The Sadducees are the Democrats. Do you think that's fair? I think it's usable, yeah. On some level, is it fair? Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Into this world and into this political maelstrom comes a man with a questionable birth lineage. I mean, if you lined up when his parents were married and when he was born, it's, it's not nine months. It's pretty short of that, actually. So there's a scandal. Uh, nothing good comes from Nazareth. He's a carpenter. We don't have much of a record uh, a, can a canonical record of his youth. I mean, we could probably assume that because it was kind of customary for, for Jewish males and boys at this time that he went to essentially religious school, Hebrew school was kind of a given. And you ever see, like, you think it's weird, like when Jesus comes to his disciples out there fishing on the sea, the men who become his disciples, and he says, Come to me, come and follow me. You ever think it's weird that like they just dropped everything? And the way it's kind of presented is like this like mystical thing, like, ah. Uh, actually, it's a very practical, this is a very practical expression that Jesus is giving. What what every the the every Jew, just about every Jewish boy wanted to hear when the time came for them to enter into adulthood, and it was either they were going to learn a craft, a trade become a, a commoner basically, or they were going to go, they had the, the acumen, the empathy, the intellectual capacity. They were chosen giftedness from the, from the other older rabbis to move on into the religious hierarchy. When they were chosen to move on to the next level in the religious hierarchy, you know what the rabbi would say? Come and follow me. That's what he would say. 
almost every Jewish boy wanted to hear a rabbi say to him one day. In our way, it would be like, it'd be like, you know, your son is, you, you, get, a, you get a letter from a major university and Nick, it, it says Alabama on it and it's Nick Saban signs it to the bottom. Hey, come play for us. That, it, it's that kind of a moment. So this isn't like, you know, mystical. It's a very practical thing. The rabbi is saying, I'm taking, the, I'm taking my talents to Gamaliel. Yes, yes. <laughs> the rabbi, <laughs> nice. All the hats are on the table. Sanhedrin, <laughs> uh, Pharisee. Yeah, where are we? Jesus. And um, yeah, that's a good analogy. I like that. All right. But in many respects, he's choosing the ones that were glommed over. They were passed over. They weren't special enough. That's why 30-year-old men are out here fishermen. No Jewish boy said, I want to grow up and be a fisherman. They didn't do that. You know, they didn't do that. Just like today, I want to be a football player. I want to be an astronaut. Nobody says, I want to be a custodial engineer. Nobody does that. So the rabbi is coming and choosing the ones who were passed over and saying, come and follow me. This is already, already upsetting the orthodoxy and the status quo. What school did you go to? Who did you learn under? What credentials do you have? You didn't come through our system. And then he says several provocative things. In the Gospel of John, Jesus calls God his own father, which, is the Jewish, which in the Jewish culture was an expression meant to be one that is equal to. Like in the... the Parable, parable of the prodigal son, where the son says to the, the prodigal says, I want what's mine, my inheritance. You know, they didn't have like liquidated assets. Essentially, to fulfill this requirement in this day and age, the, 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 the father must cash out like he's dead, like hand over an inheritance. In that same gospel, Jesus goes so far as to refer to himself as I am. We've talked about that before. That's a direct citation to what God says to Moses at the burning bush. Tell him, I am sent you. He goes on to say, quote, I and the Father are one. That's a powerful statement. One of the most sacred prayers in Judaism, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus claims the mantle of Daniel's Old Testament prophecy when he says to Caiaphas and the high council, quote, I am, there's that phrase again, when asked directly if he is, quote, are you the blessed, the anointed one? Meaning, are you the Christ? His answer, I am. An expression that bestows upon himself, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. In the Gospel of Luke, when he reads the scroll of Isaiah at the Sabbath ceremony. And it's Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon, is upon me. And it's Isaiah describing in the, in the past what the, what the ministry of the Messiah would look like. Jesus then, after reading it, sits down and says, Today this scripture is fulfilled among you. It is fulfilled in your hearing. I fulfill it. Back to his showdown with Caiaphas, Jesus doubles down, just like he did in Luke. When, when he read that, like with some first-person authority, like, who's this kid? And he's like, uh, today this is fulfillment among you. How you like them apples? He doubles down on Caiaphas, and he adds to it. Like we just saw, we talked about Candace Owens doing this yesterday. 
She was like to, to Jerry Nadler, oh yeah, and one more, or to Ted Lou, one more, one more thing. Jesus does this here to Caiaphas. And let me throw this in for you, okay? And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. A direct quote right out of Daniel. He goes over the top. He comes off the top rope. No timidness here. He adds Daniel's, David, he also invokes David's prophecy of the Messiah being at the right hand of God, which is a piece, which in the, in the, in the, in the Eastern world was a sign of power. Jesus's disciples come to him and say, who gets to sit at the, at, at your right? You're the hand of the king. Yes. That's out of Psalm 110. Jesus Jesus is saying here, he alone has been given the seat of authority to judge, including the very high council that is currently judging him. He's saying to Caiaphas, you can't fire me. I'm going to come I already fired you. You've been weighed, measured, and found wanting. You're not, you think you're the judge here. This is like Luke Skywalker to Kylo Ren. Amazing. Everything you just said is exactly wrong. You have it all backwards. Jesus also throughout the Gospels claimed, demonstrated the attributes of God, like omniscience, prophesying to Peter and the disciples at his Olivet Discourse, the power to forgive sins, the power to raise the dead, to heal the sick, power over nature, dominion over the powers of darkness, which they even acknowledge in the Gospels. So the conflict here is a convergence of powers. And when Jesus asked the question, whom do the people say that I am? He poses this question at a place called Caesarea Philippi, a center of pagan and demonic worship in that day. And he looks at his disciples and says, upon this rock, we will build my church. Here, even in places like Caesarea Philippi, where the demon Pan is worshipped, even here, we will advance and the gates of hell will not prevail. So the challenge for all of us is we have to answer this question too. Who do you say he is? You're going to line up with one of the powers in this story. It's just a matter of which one. John three seventeen. This is Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network.